Welcome to Geographers Without Borders, brought to you by Women in GIS. This interview-style podcast brings you guests from around the world to share about their niche in geography. From GIS to urban planning to marine biology, scientists and professionals around the world use the science of geography to solve problems critical to humanity every day. Stick around for the end of the episode to find out more about getting involved in Women in GIS. And now your host, Shannon Fox Day. Hello, and welcome back to Geographers Without Borders, sponsored by Women in GIS. I'm your host, Shannon Fox Day. On today's episode, I'm speaking with Bonnie McLean, geospatial analyst, author, open data advocate, speaker, and passionate information sharer. Bonnie is here to talk about how she went from medical writer to presenter and Python aficionado. Listen to hear about how she decided she was ready to write a book, reading her own Amazon reviews, and why open data is important. Check out the episode now. Bonnie, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me at Geographers Without Borders today. Oh, I'm glad to be here. Borderless. (laughs) That's right. Without the borders. So... You do not necessarily have a traditional path to the geospatial world. How did you get here to writing and publishing books about Python and talking and speaking all over the world about open data and GIS and those things? As it it probably makes sense that that's the biggest question I'm most often asked. But I also, you know, jumping ahead, a bunch of us that get together and talk about issues notice the one common thread we have is that we were looking for a solution to a problem we already had versus, you know, sitting there starry-eyed with a dream of being geospatial analysts someday. I was looking for a solution. You know, I was a big time, you know, medical writer, healthcare data analyst, and I started getting a lot of data that people wanted it pivoted around race. And I didn't know what to do with it because I recognize race as a social construct, not as a biologic proxy for anything, even working with, you know, um, patient data and all of that stuff. And I just just couldn't understand what I was supposed to do with it. And somehow I discovered looking at place, looking at location, looking at the built infrastructure and a lot of that came when I caught a conference presentation by Chu Sun Wu, who uh, is big with Google Earth Engine, and he just writes a lot of code of, around looking at Google Earth Engine inside of uh, a Pythonic environment. And you know, I sat there and watched his presentation for like an hour, and I was just mesmerized. I saw a lot of those questions starting to be unraveled and you know at the same time recognizing it was going to be a you know technologic journey to get those skills but i have to admit i went from watching him speak at a conference one year and a year to the day i was presenting at the same conference and that's not a testament to me it's a testament about chusun's like his dedication to the field of geospatial. So that is a a winding path. 
Was it during that journey that you identified open data and data accessibility as, as a passion that you knew you wanted to advocate for? Or was that something that you had always held true to yourself? Well, I often wondered like why there were these solutions that to me seemed obvious that people weren't engaging with, like the US Census, because I was asked to speak a lot about data literacy. I was on the Speakers Bureau for Tableau, and I had all this great data that I wanted to use. So people would say, wow, that's in census data, like beyond just demographic information. And it was open data. Anyone can get in there and use census data. And it is so highly valuable. But people were like making up data scenarios and making up test cases and using fake data. And I'm like, in the world we live in, why would you be using fake data when you can actually expose people to data that they can use to answer, well, formulate and answer their own data questions? So I sort of gained a lot of expertise around census data to tell data stories. That's incredible. I can't imagine having that thought and experience of seeing people making up dummy cases of data and do really expecting to get good analysis of it. What was the reception like when you really started exposing people to this data that already existed and said, hey, this is already out there for you? Well, I don't know, but I started getting asked to speak at a lot of conferences, like I invented the U.S. Census or something. But, you know, I also did a lot of uh, analytics and clinical trial data. So I would take clinical trial data and I would look at registry data and try to match the populations and see how the outcomes were in different therapeutic areas across, you know, the pharmaceutical industry. That was very popular because people don't know how to, you know, how to explain how outcomes will vary in a highly controlled environment in a clinical trial versus when you have patients coming in your office that are going to be comorbid, are going to be outside of the age, you know, range that maybe you want in a clinical trial. How are physicians at the point of care supposed to navigate a highly homogenous population in a heterogeneous clinical practice. So just making people aware that we can do this and you don't have to write big checks and hire huge companies. It costs just as much to do it the right way as it does like the wrong way. And I just was trying to be sort of an evangelist and just to close out on that, well, how is it received? You know, there's this Upton Sinclair quote is that you can't convince people to believe something if their salary depends on them not believing it. So I kind of felt like I had outgrown the boundary of the pharmaceutical industry. Um, and that's not to be punitive or anything like that. It just seems that I wanted to expand what I was saying more in the research environment. And I started talking uh, with large hospital systems about how better to tell data stories and understand the data that they had because we unleashed a whole bunch of data on people once we started digitizing medical records. And I think people didn't know how to think of it outside of just demographics. And I wanted to challenge them to formulate bigger and better questions.
it's really great. I can see why they would reach out to you and say, oh, you've taken all of these little things and silos and really put this into something that's much more consumable for us and in a way that's more accessible. We people, I think, like to overcomplicate, especially when it comes to thinking about correlation and causation. And so you know, what is that famous thing where the use of Internet Explorer went down and so did murders? So clearly it was Internet Explorer that was driving, <laughs> driving people to kill. Um, you know, we know that that's not true. But, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> you know, there there it is. We want to think those things. Less Internet Explorer. Um, so most recently you published a book, Python for Geospatial Data Analysis. What made you decide that you were ready to write a book? You know, that's funny because I didn't really make the decision. I um I wanted to pivot away from medical writing and medical kind of that healthcare analyst. So I really uh, I found an executive online program offered through the Food School of Engineering at Columbia, of all places, and uh, I, I it was an applied analyst like certificate over, I, I don't know, have months and months uh, of uh, learning. And I thought that would be the end of it. And what I realized is after all of that hard work, I still wouldn't know where to start Monday if I had a data problem. It was just so much information, you know, and you go from soup to nuts, you know, in six months you're learning, hello world. And hey, look at me, now I'm a programmer. You know, it was, it was just too much. So I started taking on like small little, I'd look in GitHub and I'd find a little package or I'd go into a user manual of a, a you know, a geo, geospatial platform and that was had a Jupyter notebook associated with it. And I'd start going through these to see if I could tell stories and they were breaking, like the code wasn't working and there were errors. And I was like, what is going on? And I just had to rewind and slowly apply my knowledge of how things work in a classroom to how they work in the real world. When you have real people managing, you know, federated data and, you know, open data. So I uh, started noticing simple solutions and I was like, well, my God, that took two days. Why didn't someone just say that this was the case? So I started writing them down. And then I realized, you know, I might want to write a book about Python because that, see, I was an R programmer first, but the uh, Columbia course, of course, was all Python. And once I got over myself and realized I had to learn another coding language, uh, I really went, I went all in. And it, it was definitely worth it. And the book came about during COVID. And I'm not sure when, because that was such a gray black, it was such a gray <laughs> box of time during that right. period. But the Atlantic had a, they used to have live events, I think in New York, they'd have this thing and it was online that year. And I was bored, like we all were. So I logged in, I think it was free because of COVID and I logged in and there's all these dynamic conversations that were data adjacent. And I started writing in the chat boxes and connecting with people. And out of the blue, a woman who was an acquisitions editor at O'Reilly happened to pull me into one of these little chat rooms and we just got on like we were lifelong friends and she's like you know 
would you like to write a book? <laughs> and I mean, that's how they got me. I mean, I was not, even though I'm, I, I come up as a writer, it was not a goal of mine. And so, you know, working with O'Reilly was very pivotal in, in my understanding how to write a published book and what the goals and outcomes can be. I've written one more with a different publisher since then on sequel and geospatial. And I'm working on a third now with Locate Press, which is a geospatial press. So these are like three bowls of oatmeal. And I think that third one is the one that's not too hot or not too, not too cold. That's but uh, I mean, I've just learned so much. I mean, in such a short amount of time about the publishing industry. Uh, and I'm eternally grateful, you know, for the process. Yes. Well, there's not, I mean, there's not really that many women in your position putting out Python books on geospatial data analysis, especially where you talk about the frustration between really this knowledge gathering, knowledge information development to avoid almost the anxiety of doing versus doing. Sometimes we think we can learn everything about something and that gonna is is gonna make the outcome perfect and we can approach it in the better way, but we really never get to learn all of the things. And so then we get stuck in what do they call it analysis paralysis? And so yeah. we're, just, we're just constantly information gathering, but not moving forward. So the identification that you did to move forward with that book is awesome. I have read the reviews and I, people are saying that they can pick it up and it gives them something to do and things that they can act on right away. I think that that's awesome and so valuable. And I think that's because I saw, but you can tell people that don't get the joke that are like, what, what's going on here? I don't know everything about geopandas. What are you doing? Where are you? Some, some chick named, named Penny definitely didn't like, <laughs> didn't like <laughs> the book, but like the book is like 10 short stories. And these are stories about like, hey, do you know what GDAL is? Do you know how you can use it in terminal? Do you know how to use an IDE? Well, here's Spider. Here's how you can, you know, make it Pythonic. Here's, you know, a Python API from ArcGIS. Here's QGIS. Here, you know, just like all these different things to kind of familiarize yourself with how these tools work. And I resist it creating scenarios that I don't use in a workflow. Like I didn't spend, I did a little bit with how to use Python, integrate it with, you know, QGIS, you know, using PyQGIS. That's just not how I do it though. So I wasn't going to do an artificial application. I wanted to talk people through it, but I didn't want to give the illusion that that was my workflow or my solution. So I think that worked really well, giving people the exposure and aligning it in a way where each chapter you could get from beginning to end in using the tool. And I, I just recently had this analogy that I really, really liked that, you know, I'm actually stocking your pantry in your kitchen. And what I'm not doing though is coming over and cutting the vegetables for you. <laughs> So you have to kind of, you know, I think we do a disservice in technology instruction where we want to put like every single step and then people think they're well served if they can follow every single step. But then what happens when one of those steps is non-functional 
or maybe that package wasn't maintained and there's like now something's not working. People just kind of fall apart and they don't know how to move forward. But if you teach them how to learn, how to learn a programming language or how to learn how to integrate that package with a data question that they have, because that's kind of what I was doing. I was falling in love with these packages and then I wanted to share with people how they could use these packages with their data as well. That is really such a great application. When I think of, I think of a story of two people who are learning code, two young people really, and one would raise their hand and say, hey, you know, can I have some help? And the teacher would go over and there would be a bunch of code on there and they would say, oh, can you help me with my code? And it would be a bunch, a mess, and you could help them out. And then the other student would go, oh, can you help me? And they would have nothing on their screen. And the teacher went over and thought, oh, they didn't even try. But when they went back later and were able to look at what the child had done, it turned out that they had written a bunch of code, but before they asked the teacher for help, they deleted it all. And so oh. there's, there's this, right. So there's this kind of, there's the two different aspects of, I, I don't think I'm right at all. I need to be perfect, really. And and so I'm going to wipe it out before I ask for help. And then there's that, man, I messed this up. <laughs> I need- And I don't care. Oh, I yeah. Mean, and it doesn't, both are valid. It's just kind of an interesting thought approach when you're thinking of it. I completely agree that we give, we do a disservice in technical education by many, most of the time, I would say using very sanitized data, really clean data every step, as you said, and then sending people off into the world. And as we all know, that is very often just not the case and doesn't reflect reality at all. And that, that's kind of why I like, like the role of the book when I was looking at some data sets, I was like, well, how do you want to identify missing data? Cause it's in there and you have to know how to, how to find it. Cause it might impact any statistical calculations you might want to do. Mm -hmm. And, you know, just having people understand. And I do think, I love that you said that about, there's not a lot of people that are like me that are doing this work. And I felt that I was just at SciPy in Austin and people were coming up to me with books they brought from home for me to sign that I, that I had written. That's so and exciting. I, and, you know, I thought, but yeah, I was a big fish in a tiny puddle, but it was just very, it was very eye-opening to me because originally there really was no space. And I'm very aware of other women coming out with books. And I was thanked by my publisher. Oh, I love how you guys are supporting each other. And I didn't want to say, well, if we don't, there's no one there to do it. I mean, all the guys are like slapping each other on the back and they're, you know, like this one guy, he says, best-selling, you know, uh, author. And I'm thinking, you know, I've logged into Amazon and my book's been number one at that moment for a few days and then it dies down and then I go speak somewhere and it's number one again. I just never had the like, pardon the expression, the cojones to be like, look at me, I'm a bestseller. I just, I didn't own it. I didn't claim it. And you know, that might be a different way that we are in a, in the technical world. I, I don't know, but I know that having me front and center, somebody, you know, in the final third of their career with brown skin, 
who's has such a different path to to where I am now. I think that's great because it gets more diversity and more people stepping forward to, you know, hey, you know what? I can do it too. Yes, always. Absolutely. It's, I mean, it's still a tough world out there, especially for women in coding and getting into the more nitty gritty technical spaces. Uh, I think we talk, we have talked about before on the show, the difficulty in self-promoting it's a thing that we experience societally as women to be small. And so, yeah, it's hard to self-promote. Well, it was kind of funny because I was invited to the White House. Uh, I forget what year it was. It was during the Obama administration and it was for the uh, uh, Council on Aging, the White House Council on Aging. It's every 12 years. And I was walking from my hotel across the green to the little check booth where you have to show your ID. And I'm thinking, look at me going to the White House. And, you know, and people were thinking about, well, did you have imposter syndrome? I'm like, hell no, I had it's about time syndrome. I mean, I was so proud of myself in that moment, you know, yeah. and I've had so many moments like that, that I want to gather people around because they're like how did you get to go to the white house and meet obama and i'm like i asked a door closed i was uninvited to a medical conference that was um one of the alzheimer's conferences because i was one of those people that was saying over and over again looking at the data there's no small molecule solution to this this is a preventative thing and I started getting uninvited to some of the conferences that I used to be invited to when I say invited I don't have to pay so you know these things are very expensive so I had just gotten snubbed from attending one in Toronto and I saw that the White House Conference on Aging was coming and I was just emboldened and I'm just like here's why I want to come you know <laughs> and like two days later, they're like, pick up your pass, you know, on this lawn of the White House and come on in. It, it was that easy. I mean, obviously, you know, there's stuff behind it, but I, I feel like maybe, like you said, maybe we're just not asking. It's a lot of it is that, yes, I, it is hard to ask. I always say to my team and to people that I work with and to especially young women out there, you're... Of course, the answer is always no if you never ask. And whenever I'm working with my team on things that they want or how we can make their jobs better, I always do ask them, what can we, you have to ask me what you want. Tell me what you want. Tell me what your dream job looks like on a day-to-day -day for you. And you can't love what you do all the time, but let's try and work towards making that happen. And like you said, let ask, can I come? Can I do that? Can I speak this? And if the answer is no, I think it's valid in lots of cases to ask why not. Yeah, or maybe it's just no now. Like right. I remember, or when, yeah. Like I remember go I used to go every year to the National Press Club. They had this, the Johns Hopkins would have a bunch of their researchers would come and share whatever topic they were, you know, interested in sharing that year. And they would come talk to the press club. And the researchers would field questions because, you know, they wanted people to write about the work they were doing. And I remember just wandering around the halls and thinking like, wow, I would love to join. I could, they would never, never, never. And like a year or two later, I applied and they accepted me. 
So I, you know, I get to be a member of the National Press Club in Washington, D.C., with all that gives you access to the White House, access to big conversations. I mean, it's just been, I, I guess I've been a career of like, I think of that little, um, well, Zelig was the original Woody Allen character where he would morph into these famous people in their presence and he was just always at the right place. And then Tom Hanks in, a, in the more modern version of that uh, when he was um, Forrest Gump, when he just ended up in all of these historical scenes. Right. And I always feel a little Forrest Gumpy, you know, <laughs> because here, here I am at NASA. Here I am at the White House. Here I am in Kosovo, keynoting, you know, this huge, you know, open data conference. So it's kind of like that. And that's part of the fun that I really have enjoyed working in this environment. Right. With all of that and all of your advocacy for open data, what is something that analysts out there can do to promote and encourage open data, data sharing, and democratic use of first-level data and, and all aspects of data? Well, you know, when I think of first-level data, I think of the, you know, the NASA, the level zero one yep. <laughs> through four. So when I think of first-level, I guess you mean data that's free and accessible? Well, I'm thinking data that they're collecting themselves. Oh, so, got you. Okay. You know, what I, yeah, the self-generated, if we're collecting that, how do we advocate with our leadership to say, hey, can we make this available to people? Maybe they work in a municipality or or something of the sort. Yeah, you know, I I, I struggled with that a little bit because I had a project. Uh, there was data, what was it called? Um, I can't think, the census data, oh, the pulse surveys that came out during COVID mm. where they wanted timely information during the pandemic, but you know the problem was they weren't asking the right questions. They weren't asking the same questions that were asked in the biannual, you know, uh, survey. So I was confused. Like, well, where does this data sit if I can't combine it with the other sorts of data? So people sort of have to have a really good data question, and then try to figure out how it applies to the data on hand. A lot of I feel like the big knowledge gap is when we have data and we want to tell that data's particular story versus we have a well-formulated data question and then we bring the data we need to the table and we look and see what data we have, what data we wish we had and data that maybe nobody's even collecting that would fill a certain gap and then include that in the story instead of just talking about what you have on hand. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And I completely agree. A lot of times we will see someone, the concept in the phrase is, you know, when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail, right? And so sometimes you will encounter people who have a bunch of data and they're, they're looking for a question. Just like you said, and there's they're saying, oh, well, I've got all this, all this stuff and and we need to do something with it. And let's run it through a script or let's run it through a graph or let's run it through a thing. But like you're I mean, to me, what are you how do you know what you're trying to find out if you don't know what you're trying to find out? And we also, you know, we have like people look for patterns. Sure. And they think because it's doing something that there's a story there. 
But you know, often if you're really exploring a data question, you have to hold a tension. Yes. And what I mean by that is you can ask a big question and in your heart's desire, you hope that this data is now going to tell the story you want to tell. You have to be prepared that there could be very compelling data that kind of undermines what you thought your story was going to be. But you need to bring it on board because anyone who works with data is going to see that it's missing. And you know that's a big problem. And people don't realize that we're all data is biased. You could take the rawest data that you could think of in the world, and it's biased because humans have generated, made a decision about whether to include it, have run it through you know, a computer, have put it in software, have stored it on a shelf. I mean, we have to recognize all data is biased. And I hear people all the time that think you can eliminate bias from this, from that, and you just cannot. And I think we would have an easier time accepting the limits of artificial intelligence if we realize that it's just gathering up all the stuff that we're feeding it and give it a pardon that it's not going to be the, you know, we can't homogenize heterogeneous information beyond a certain level, right? That's but if you're exploring point. a question, of course, then your, your doubt and your transparency can be communicated. And now right. we have engagement. Now right. we have someone that says, yeah, you know, you're right. We don't collect VPN data. Why is that? That right. would close this loophole. Let's see what we can do about that. And then you start collecting because we call it missing data. data. Now, missing data, well, that's normative. If we're going to label it as missing, then we know it should be there. And we've made a conscious decision not to collect it. And people like don't kind of see that when they're talking about data and the data that's available to, you know, answer a question. And I always reduce things to that because I never want to stand on a stage and have people think that, uh, well, Bonnie's going to give us the, I don't know, I'm going to tell you where to look. I'm not going to tell you what you're going to see when you look there necessarily. I can teach you maybe, you know, air quotes here, how to see and how maybe your biases may be impacting your perception, but I can't get you the last mile home. Mm -hmm. Yep. We're going to have to walk that our own, right? <laughs> I mean, you know, I'll walk with you, but you know, <laughs> I'm not going to give you all the answers. And a lot of people want things. I, I remember yeah. when I used to work uh, moderating medical conferences and I would, you know, we would present data on hypertension and people would pull me into the audience and say, okay, okay, okay. So what should I prescribe to my patient? Mm -hmm. And I'm like, first of all, I'm not a medical doctor. Second of all, you saw all the data up there. There's no easy answer. That was the whole point of this 90 minute <laughs> discussion we're having, mm -hmm. but people still, they short circuit things and they want to just kind of have everything summarized and delivered and you know i know i've been talking a lot about medicine and healthcare but that was really my opening into a different way of looking at data instead of summarizing just all the qualitative information you know i wanted to start you know quantifying i wanted to analyze urban form and urban morphometrics and engage these discussions around the built infrastructure 
and persistent barriers to move within that infrastructure that can impact, well, health outcomes or the vulnerability of a community or a city. So that's kind of how I connect those two, you know, um, paths. Awesome. Women in GIS would like to thank our sponsors for their continued support. A special thanks to our platinum sponsors, the Wyoming Geographic Information Science Center at the University of Wyoming, Esri, Bad Elf, and the Embedded Alliance. Thank you. So, Bonnie, what is something that people don't know about using open data and the impact that it can have in decision-making and planning and in how they approach their work differently. We've talked a lot about that, I think, so far, but what would you say is something that sticks out to you as, as often surprising to people when they start to enter the world of open data? You know, I think when I pull a narrative or a story or a presentation together, and people are surprised that that type of information is just out there floating around. Like recently, uh, where was I? I think State of the Map in Richmond, where we were looking at walkability of cities. And really, you know, there's a the Healthy Cities Initiative, which I can give you the link to include. They had like 21 cities that were already a part of it, where you could just pull in you know, open street map data and population data and look at the, you know, the urban structure in your environment and look at walkability. Like if there's a big parking, a lot of big parking lots that impacts walkability. Uh, looking at the, you know, the parcel size, if you have to walk around a corner, you know, what's the best way to look at these sorts of things. And, you know, it's very dynamic when you look at it, because I can say, well, look at Houston that doesn't have any um, zoning and then we'll, well, quote unquote zoning, and then look at, you know, East Palo Alto and compare it to Palo Alto divided by a highway. You know, just, you can build all these stories in when you start understanding there's a lot of information that is there for the telling that doesn't blame anyone you know it's not about the ethnicity of the people that live there it's about like well what can we tell by looking at the type of decision tree that predicts how these landscape characteristics are going to impact the people that live there and it engages a broader discussion and it encourages you know there's a lot sometimes they just get an idea and I go like into GitHub and I'm like, hmm, well, is there anything I can learn about the urban, urban morphology using Python? Because I, you know, I, I had to come up with a uh, workshop title sort of last minute for SciPy because my original plan wasn't going to work reliably with the resources at hand at the facility where we were having it. And so I took on this big challenge and I found this package that I just thought um, was spectacular. It's called MOMPY, M-O-M-E-P-Y. And it's like measuring, you know, morphology with Python is kind of what that all stands for. And I knew it was a big task, but I also knew this was something that people have not seen. And I, I just wanted to hack through it in the four hours that I had. And we had a great time. 
So I think people underestimate the power of questions or areas of interest they may have. And there's no need to reinvent the wheel. I mean, you can start working with the packages that are there and then adapt them to your need. And you know, maybe you do provide a lot of unique code and send it up and you know for them to review. Or maybe it just turns into this fantastic story that you get to share you know, in a conference setting or in your classroom, that kind of thing. I always love getting into different data and then sharing that out for people. And I'm always a little shocked when people first find out that you can search up things like property records and find out who owns what land in, in most of the cities across the U.S. And I know this because I worked in planning departments and things like that, but most people are always shocked at that. Yeah, I was looking at cadastral maps the other day. <laughs> I was like, I how is this information out here and no one's using it to add a different layer to a story? You know, mm -hmm. I mean, I, I find that it's just it's just amazing. Uh, you know, and I listen to a lot of like uh Climify is a really good podcast. I listen to a lot of podcasts, and some of them are not geospatial, but then I think to myself, well, why not? Location. Mm -hmm is a big thread running through that narrative. Let me think about a story where I can pull that in. And that's sort of why, as I speak a lot this year, it's been, you know, adjacent to what's a city, you know, mm -hmm. and how yeah. can we use that question to ask and answer or address bigger questions? Yep, and bigger challenges, absolutely. What is your favorite tool GIS or otherwise? I think I really like QGIS. I, you know, I, I'm not sure if that's considered like a tool, but it's something that I go to really quickly when I, when I see a data set, I, when I just want to look around an area, even if I'm going to be doing like some kind of statistical analysis, I just want to see the way the place is laid out. And I want to be able to, because it's integrated with so many interesting data sets now I want to be able to look at you know what do the building footprints look like you know yeah I'm really interested in you know examining the disaster in Pakistan after all the flooding but you know after the flooding now what it's almost like when you have a baby and the last person brings you a tray of lasagna and they're like "Woo, girl you know you had a baby here's some lasagna and then you know three months later when the kid's not sleeping at night and everything's horrible you're like where's my lasagna you know I mean <laughs> right. I think of it the same way you know when there's like a disaster and then we just kind of stop like here's where the flood went here's the area of the flood here's the flood extent here's the calculations we did here well now what are these people doing I mean because we have these Afghan refugees that just got flooded out we have agriculture we have homes here we have roads that were wiped out what does this look like now? How do we measure what we measured last, you know, last year, August? How is the recovery looking? You know, how are, how are we building this out to tell a better story of survival, of things that can avoid? You know, I was just looking at the data, trying to figure all this out. And I noticed that the largest collection of glaciers outside of the Arctic sits above you know, the flooding area in Pakistan. And I'm thinking, well, there's something. 
<laughs> you know, that links back to climate and all of that. You know, these aren't like just let's stick it on a map and take a look. Sometimes the map is just where you start and the story veers off into something a lot more cinematic than you originally thought just by exploring location, location, location. Mm -hmm. I always remember growing up looking at maps and particularly floor plans in that way. And you scan around almost. And that's what I picture when you say it's not just throw it on the map. You have to see what is the greater, bigger picture of all of these things and how does it work together? And can we add more, more information, more data points to it? You know, and actually just to add a little spice to the tool question, you know, I mean, I wrote a, a book on a Python and I adore Python, but Python's not something that you can just jump in in 10 minutes necessarily and get answers to your questions. But my second book was SQL. And, you know, SQL is sort of in the background in a lot of the filtering and querying in uh, QGIS because it integrates so well with a lot of these databases. And I find that the natural way of thinking sometimes lends itself to the SQL language when you're like, well, you know what, let's just select these parcels of this certain area that are near this thing, you know, and that's just, that's how your brain works. And then you can just write that in SQL and you can watch the canvas update and only show you those things that you can now color in a different color and layer them on top of the original. And now people can start interacting with what you're looking at and with what you're building. So I would add that as like, if you have no skills at all in a language or anything, understanding, you know, SQL next to JavaScript is probably the easiest value add you can do while you're on your journey because I remember working with, because uh, <laughs> the first book had a chapter on census. So of course I write about census when I'm talking about SQL as well. And I remember working through renaming columns and getting everything cleaned up. And I was like, oh my God, this is so easy. <laughs> Why was I not doing this before? You know, so like I said, like the workflows I share are the ones I actually use. I don't build them up to be more than they are if I don't use it that way. That makes sense. That makes so much sense, especially talking about SQL versus Python, because I'm terrible at Python, but I am much more comfortable in SQL. But I used that a lot more. And it was it's very difficult for me to think of how to apply Python to a lot of situations wherein I work with people who it's it they think of how how can we use this in Python right away and it's so the difference is really interesting to me and you're like a double whammy with the Python and the SQL two books one in each well because you have to learn how to use narrative language to describe mm -hmm. complicated things and I think people understand data frames and what you know what's happening in Python and if you say geo pandas and we're looking at geo data frames they can understand that now we're looking at that information think of it as a table whether you know depending on the dimensionality of it and now we have location built into that table so you know you just have to take it slowly and let it sink in to what you're actually doing versus just copying the code that someone told you you have to copy and put it like this and then it'll run and then you sort of you know hold your breath and you know hit you know hit run and hope for the best 
you know, I, I think like you had uh, mentioned before, it's the way we teach it. And, you know, I'm a little, you know, I'm older. And I remember when IT was just like a separate thing. Like I used to, mm-hmm. I spent a year on contract at GlaxoSmithKline, you know, a big pharmaceutical company. And if you had anything too techy, you know, you just put a request in to IT, which was usually located in some dark room off of the printer <laughs> area, you know, and you didn't even know how to ask your question. You just right. didn't know. You would just sit there, you know, and I was working in like HIV research and I would just have to say, well, here's this patient. This is all the data we collected. And I wanted to look like that, you know, <laughs> but nowadays you just have to, you have to know. Yes. You have to learn. It's got to be built into either your communication, because let's face it, you know, I'm not running code on every question I have. There's teams that I work with. There's other people that I'm collaborating with if it's that sort of a, a project. So I, but I better understand the language. I better know the whole stack and who's doing what and who's responsible for what, because like, I love to share with people my first data client separate you know outside of medicine they got exactly what they asked for they did not get what they wanted and you know i'm glad i learned that lesson early because it made me a better analyst moving forward it made me a better storyteller and it made me a better teacher Mm -hmm. how do you feel about the new overture maps data endeavor that really just hit the streets of this big consolidation of maps between, (laughs) between with Tom, Tom and Microsoft. Right. Did you not hear me when we, I I think this was off air when I was telling you that I basically pulled my whole computer down right before we were talking. Yeah. Was that I was working with parquet data. I I had loaded up into AWS and I was like inadvertently, I hit like the mother load of all downloads and it wasn't filtered. It was like every building, every boundary, every everything was like coming down to my computer. And I I wrote code to get it in there and I couldn't figure out how to stop it. Oh no. <laughs> so no, I think it's great. I, I do think it's great, but I also feel, and I noticed this, um, in QGIS as well, they have a plugin where you can actually pull in the buildings and the population and a lot of this information in one place, but they're not, I feel like they're missing the granularity because I think we all should start small mm-hmm. yeah, <laughs> and, and then go big. I think it's a nice, I, I think it's something that'll make things easier for those of us who use the data in, in that way. But, you know, parquet data is not is no joke. I mean, you really have to know intentionally what you're doing. And I was very lucky that um, I read a lot of articles out of journals like Cities. And I plucked out an article where they had used that MoMPy package I was talking about, where they were using Earth observation, integrate it with morphometrics. And the author was so kind. I mean, he sent me a a link to his, like he created a folder for me on Google Drive and we were working through it. And it's like a little precursor to what just came out. So I can definitely see the utility, 
but you know how to work with this efficiently if you're an N of one and not sitting in a huge enterprise environment with you know that computing power. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm working on how to scale it down, and then I'll write an article like how I did it. That's kind of how I write when I fit, when I crack a nut and I want to show people this is how I did it. You know, it helps a lot of people. So that's kind of where I am with that. Um, I learned a big lesson when I realized that when I wrote the code out the way I thought that it was, you know, bringing all of the overture data down, not just, you know, <laughs> this, it, it was quite, I mean, I was amused that I got it cleaned up before we had, <laughs> we were scheduled to talk, but I think it's even funnier that you asked about it. <laughs> that's, that is funny. Yeah. Cause you didn't mention it was overture data. You had just said, oh, you we're wrestling with the computer before. That's hilarious. Our last question, and one that we ask everyone, is if you could explore any place on Earth without borders, where would you pick? You know, I keep returning to this for many, many reasons, but I am fascinated with Brazil. J just, you know, because, you know, and I, I, I'm not, I don't know if I'm supposed to say like Mars. No, I mean, I just think <laughs> Brazil has always been a place that I've returned to. It has a whole chapter in the Python book of whenever I want to talk about deforestation and the complexity of government with indigenous populations, with mining and, you know, all of those problems, you know, and successes, you know, in these different regions. And, you know, I, I want to call out that FOSS 4G 2024 is going to be in Belém, uh, Brazil. So I, I don't know. I just love all the little microclimates and just where you can just drop in and they have a lot of open data. And I was very fortunate to host some uh, African Brazilian journalists on my porch for um, a meal. I guess that was last year, maybe the year before. I don't know. I just, I keep being pulled back in. Like, I think there's more story there. And it's an area that I'm looking forward to being able to be there live and really do some traveling and interview some people and, you know, see it, see it for myself. Very cool. Yeah. I have never been to Brazil, but I would go there. I think that sounds awesome. For the record, you don't have to say space or Mars. I don't think we've ever had someone say space yet. But you know what? Like I went to Kosovo for the first time and, you know, that never would have been on a travel itinerary, like a vacation. Right. I was invited oh, that must to have be been cool. I was invited to be a keynote, you know, for FOSS4G. Yeah. And let me tell you that first morning, besides all the hospitality, you know, before the first morning, I wake up and there's a, um, a mosque somewhere in the little neighborhood and oh, it's wow. all like Ottoman empire cobblestone yes. streets and the call to prayer comes up and echoes is wild. I'm like, I'm like where am I? Right. <laughs> like, I'm just like, where in the war? It was so beautiful. And it just made me finally grow up and be like, you know what? I'm going to travel wherever travel takes me. Yeah. I'm, not, I, I'm a very seasoned traveler, but I'm like, hey, Italy, Paris, London, you know, sure. which is great because I know that's a lot. A lot of people don't have that, you know, but 
I'm so curious to travel to places that I just never thought Bonnie would be walking down the streets. Oh, yeah. Like I would just go, if you invited me to anywhere on the earth, I probably would say yes, because again, yes, man. (laughs) It was so funny. It was like passport control coming out of Kosovo. And there was this guy who was like a thick neck and he just was like really stern and and muscular and he's behind the thing and he's looking at my passport and he looks up at me and he's like this is your first time here and I'm like yeah and he's like welcome Bonnie you know <laughs> it's just so cute I mean he would just welcome me with this big smile and I was just like oh my god I just love my life I love the work I do right. and I just love you know what it is I just love seeing those dots on maps become people yes well, thank you so much, Bonnie, for taking the time out of your busy schedule, lecturing and speaking and writing books and traveling all over the world to come speak with me today at Geographers Without Borders. Thank you for inviting me. You know, I have this rule, no podcasts. <laughs> so people, when I told them I was going to be there, like, you broke your rule. I said, there's something about when somebody comes up to you, says your name, and is just so real. I, I couldn't say no to you. You could have said, you know, give me your car. I would have handed you my keys. <laughs> <laughs> I'll keep that in mind. I'll keep yeah. that in mind. Well, thank you so much. I know you did You did say no podcast when I first approached you. So, but I am thankful and grateful that you decided to do it. It was a great chat with you today. Thank you so much. More to come, I hope. Yes, absolutely. Women in GIS, or WEGIS, is an international, professional, and social advocacy group for those whom identify as women and their allies. The aim of WEGIS is to serve as a safe place in the geospatial industry to work towards overcoming common barriers for those whom identify as women might face. We foster relationships and resource sharing among members and institutions. WEGIS is a consortium of advocates from academia, government, and private industry designed to advance the presence of women in GIS. Want to learn more about getting involved in women in GIS? Visit our website at womeningis.org, or you can email us at admin at womeningis.org. The links are below in the show notes.